0: 7654321.
1: You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this, you crazy mother.
2: Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of the Dead Pundit Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. Joining me on the line is my co host, Amy. Hi. And the other voice on the line that you're about to hear very shortly is Mr. Max Shanley. Max is co-host of All the Best podcast. He is a momentum activist over there with the UK Labour Party. And uh, he's, a, he's a real solid bloke, and we're glad to have him on the show. Max, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for inviting me on. I'm just
2: sat in bed at the moment. you got a rough day ahead of you. You're just sitting in bed, uh, chatting with yeah. the microphone. I mean, it is
1: it's quarter to three in the afternoon here, but... <laughs> You know what is there to get up for, whilst we still live under capitalism? eh?
2: That's true. That's true. I hope we can give you some hope. I hope we can give you some hope by the end of the episode. Oh, uh, wow. While we're
1: still doing the
2: while we're still doing the opening, can you do me a solid? This is like one of this is like a lifelong dream. Okay, it's, I've had this dream for like maybe a week, but okay. we'll pretend like it's a lifelong dream. Can you do your intro that you do for all the best podcasts?
1: Well, um, do you want me to do it for the Dead Pundit Society?
2: Yeah. Say well. Yeah. Do, yeah. Do it. Yeah. All right.
1: Welcome on everybody. Welcome to Dead Pundit Society with me, Max Shanley, and then you're supposed to go. And me, Adam Proctor. Are oh, you and, fucked and, it up, and man? And
2: uh, ah, damn it. Well, you know, I've been anyway, I've been listening to all the best podcasts for several weeks now. You guys have some solid <laughs> content over there. It's on uh, Navarro. Several no, weeks. I've been several serious. weeks.
1: <laughs> several weeks. I'm a long time listener <laughs> so of the show for to several this weeks.
0: <laughs> long
2: time first time over here, everybody. Uh, I might like to add, first-time.
0: Max, I'm a far more loyal and long time listener. Um,
1: well, you know. That's why Australians are better than Americans.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, we're constitutionally obliged to. It's part of still being under the Queen.
1: That's true. That's true.
2: I mean quite frankly I, I, I listened to Novara uh, media quite a bit and I didn't understand exactly how you have a pod, how you have that structured over there. you have multiple shows? Yeah. So what that, what's that all about? Give first of all uh, give our listeners who may not be familiar most of the listeners are in the United States and we are politically illiterate when it comes to other countries and most of us uh, myself included at times are like woefully uh, you know unaware that other countries exist in the world. So let's 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 bottom feed here and not presume any <laughs> any existing knowledge <laughs> (laughs) for us Americans, all right? Hmm. So what is Novara Radio Media, whatever, the the platform? uh, Who's responsible for that, and and what's what's the setup look
1: like? So it was started out as a collective of radical leftists who've been, I I believe, involved in the student movement in Britain. We had a big uh, uprising of our student movement at the start of the decade. And this is basically their thing, and they started out with a radio show called Navarra FM, where they just sort of discussed politics and all different types of things from a left perspective. And then that sort of expanded out into video and other podcasts and their host parties as well. And it's become quite the platform. So for, it's all about
2: the sex, drugs, and rock and roll is what basically what you're telling me.
1: Yeah, but, you know, obviously we're British, so it's a cup of tea, a cigarette, <laughs> and a dance. Down the bingo hall. It's quite it's it's quite polite but but kind of vulgar at the same time. Yeah. 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 I mean I think all the best is uh the, the show that I do with Matt's up yeah. cousin is um, the least Navarra of the Navarra shows. I don't know if you've also, ever listened also. to any other Navarra content. Well it's
2: it's certainly more it's certainly more laid back and more, yeah more, more more silly. Bastani is a very serious guy. Uh, very, very good interviewer, but uh,
1: silly but serious at the same yeah, time. Yeah. So uh, we try and be light hearted because me and Matt are just sort of light hearted type of people. There's no point of getting down all the time and being serious, dead serious all the time either. I, you know, I think people do like a laugh, but the idea behind all the best really is to just try to build up some form of understanding amongst the. Corbyn Eastern milieu of like the challenges that we're going to face in a very accessible way because the vast majority of this new party membership that we now have in the Labour party over half a million members don't come from any sort of organized left background they're all very enthusiastic but they've got no theory in which to orientate their practice
2: and that's a good place to be, if you ask me. I mean, a bunch of normies who just want to want to implement some socialism, right? Without to all the cer- fucking baggage well, uh, that comes along with existing sort of uh, leftists.
1: To a certain extent, yeah, right. To a certain extent, right. But unless you have a rational, uh, a rational analysis of the way you know in which the world works, everything you're, everything you do is going to be reactive, and mm-hmm. everything that you attempt to do all your practice and so on will either fall back to what works the usual which means that you basically just end up doing the same thing over and over again which is you know pointless or
0: or you're just not very reality based in the way you
1: think about things
0: and so you start squealing about abolishing the police and guillotines
1: yeah like you know the police are bad we all know this Master right? but, but saying let's uh, abolish, kind of but shit. saying the police are bad, we need massive police reform from below, community policing, in my opinion. But you know, to just say, well, let's just abolish the police without explaining the nuances is a bit silly, in my opinion. Yeah, well, that's
2: that's the United States left in a nutshell. By the way, what you just described there—it's what makes me uh, mad and keeps me up at night.
1: What? Sloganeering without nuance.
2: Sloganeer, sloganeering without any uh, without any attempt to even provide nuance or or or, or sort of uh, fill in the content of the kinds of claims that you're making about the world. And I, I mean, clearly there obviously there's some exceptions, There's some very notable exceptions to that. But I think that that's that's one of the pitfalls of of youth and and inexperience. And, and it's interesting that I think Momentum's recent onslaught of of newbies has a very different kind of character. I would I, I think. Mm. From my perspective, than than this onslaught of, of new leftists that we have seen in the United States, and and the, and the distinction there is is really interesting to me. Um, I, I want to sort of tease that out over the course of the interview. Um, it's two two very different political systems, two different political contexts, two different political cultures, and Amy, of course, has her own situation down there. Um, but I, I want to tease that out as situation. We go. <laughs> situation. That's about as in depth as I can go in Australian <laughs> politics. So let's get this thing on the road let's get the show on the road. Let's, let's do this. Talk to me about, you know, Max, you're, you're approximately how old? I am twenty eight years old. You're approximately twenty eight years old. And so you're
1: Well, I am twenty eight.
2: <laughs> you're exactly
1: twenty eight. Well, no, not exactly twenty eight. It was your <laughs> birthday six months well, ago. Yeah, but
2: so then approximately was more more spot on.
1: Yeah, but who says approximately?
2: I mean uh, you're you're round, you're round you're round uh, you're
1: Sorry, I don't mean to be a pedantic <laughs> British prick here, but uh, sorry. Just,
2: <laughs> I mean, was, yeah, actually I think you I think we're really on to a serious conversation here. Uh, you're not exactly twenty eight. No. I'm not 29 yet, though, either. You're, not yet, you're 28, not yet 29.
0: Hey, do you guys want to give me a buzz when you finish splitting hairs?
2: No, 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 no. You can just stay out of this as far as I'm concerned. Oh, uh,
1: I
0: see. Okay.
1: <laughs> I think you're I more than welcome, Amy. So I always I have more wanna... time for my for my Australian cousins and for my American ones. <laughs>
2: So you are 28, which means that your adult years kind of map on to this upsurge, yeah, in, in, in almost an I, you know, a one-to-one way, right? Yeah, I mean, you, you came of age. As a a legal adult, anyway, right around the time that the protests against austerity and the cuts were sort of kicking off in a big way. So give us a little biography of yourself, how you got involved in politics uh, and and sort of that, because that maps on very well, I think, with the rise of this moment that we're now seeing that is that is uh, on on the verge of delivering uh, a Corbyn government uh, into into power.
1: Okay, so uh, I'll give you a little bit of biographical information mine so i left school when i was 16 uh with only a handful of well, less than a well a leper's handful of qualifications i had three gcses so i wasn't particularly qualified to do anything but i went off and trained to be a computer technician because that's what i was interested in mm-hmm. and i ended up getting a job at a university uh, so I became a public sector employee right as the cuts were about to begin I joined the union on my first day. I don't come from a labour or trade union family, but my, one of my supervisors was also a union rep, so he signed me up to the union on the first day. I was never particularly political, but I came to realise the limits of industrial activism, particularly in my workplace, We had massive redundancies. Our union used to meet every day at 11 o'clock in the morning. uh, All the technicians would all sit. There was about 40 or 50 of us. And we would all just sit around in the cafeteria. And that's where we would conduct our union meeting for the day. And uh, they smashed our union. They got rid of all the shop stewards. They made people take pay cuts. And this was all happening around me. And I came to the conclusion that there were sort of limits as far as you could go in terms of like industrial organisation and so on without going for the actual power, you know, where the actual power lies. But as I say, I don't come from a political background or anything. So I was online, I was sat at my desk online, and I read an article about Ralph Miliband. Oh, yeah. So uh, I ordered a copy of Parliamentary Socialism, Ralph's great book on Labour Party and why it
2: isn't and can't be a socialist party. 1961
1: or thereabouts? 1960, I think. And I read it, and at the end of it, I decided to join the Labour Party to try and prove Ralph wrong. (laughs)
0: Um, (laughs) Because obviously he says not
1: to bother joining. Well, it's turning out all right. So I joined, that would have been around 2010. I was about 20. And I wasn't a particularly active member for a while because, I, you know, I had a lot going on at work. I didn't have a lot of free time. And what free time I did have, I wanted to spend to myself. Anyway, and I always knew I was on the left of the party as soon as I joined it. So I joined the sort of two most prominent left factions that they were, which were the Labour Representation Committee, which was chaired by John McDonnell, and the Campaign for Labour Party Democracy. Uh, and that's how I got to know John McDonald And as my work situation was sort of getting worse and worse and I was looking for an exit, John made the suggestion of, well, maybe I should go to university. You know, me, Max, not John. He's already been. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so... When the,
2: when the shadow chancellor uh, tells you to go, Well, he to wasn't shadow chancellor the at the time. He, right, he, he sure, wasn't. Sure.
1: He was. He was. To he was be, a
2: relative nobody. In to a sense. be quite
1: honest, he was an irrelevant backbench MP yep, yep. who right. literally barely anybody had the time of day for. Mm. In all seriousness, that was yeah. the situation we were in. Right. And uh, but he offered to be my reference, so I turned up um for my interview at ruskin College in Oxford, where I went where i was taught by ed rooksby who's a friend of this show i believe and uh one of my tutors bloke who ended up being my economics tutor said oh how before he asked any questions oh how do you know john mcdonald so i explained yada 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 and at the end of it he went well i'm happy to say you're in and I asked him, you know, why I was in. Was it down to the interview or anything like that? And he said, oh, no, I decided when you were walking in and I saw John McDonald down as your reference. <laughs> so that helped out. And then I was still involved in the party and active and so on. But I was getting quite frustrated with the Labour left of, of the time because they just weren't serious. So I tried focusing on my studies. And then I had the chance of doing an independent Project of my own at university, writing a a paper on a subject of my choice. So I decided to do the history of the battle for mandatory reselection in the Labour Party yeah. uh, from the mid seventies through to the eighties, which is how I came to know John Lansman, uh, who's the yeah, founder John Lansman, of Momentum. Who's sort of right
2: hand man of uh, Tony Bend, who
1: sort of led that push in a certain yeah. sense. Um, so the first, I went around Landsman's house to discuss mandatory the battle, the original battle for mandatory reselection. He invited me round for a two-hour interview, and I ended up staying for eight. And he introduced me to his wife and his kids. And we've sort of been mates and partners in crime ever since. So t- so tell my audience, particularly my United States
2: audience, uh, who we, we're ignorant, we're an ignorant bunch over here. Uh, who is John Landsman? Uh, what was his past and, and what's, his, what's his role and position? Okay, so uh, now? Uh,
1: John Landsman joined a party in the mid 1970s as a young activist inspired by Tony Benn. He got involved in the campaign for Labour party democracy, which was really sort of the grassroots Benite vehicle of the day. Not founded or led by Tony in any measurable way, but he acted as somewhat of a tribune for the party activists. Uh, Sir Lansman was involved in that from being a very young man. He designed the original electoral college that was used to uh, elect the leader of the party because originally that was just done by MPs. Uh, And he got that through in 1980. In 1981, age 24, Landsman ran Tony Benn's deputy leadership campaign, in which the left came within half a percent of capturing the leadership of uh, the deputy leadership of the Labour Party and would inevitably then have won the leadership later on down the line. But it was uh, stolen from movement activists by MPs who had a third of the vote in that election and a few of them abstained and that's what led to to tony losing yeah
2: one of those key turning points you have to ask yourself what if in
1: the yeah. in the history no, of the election, say world socialism even yeah no yeah, there's I was another just gonna there,
0: say like a sliding doors moment if you will yeah.
1: well there's another there's another lots of people point to the mps who abstained and everything but there is another theory which is that ben would have won if the vote, the block vote of the national union of public employees had got behind him. And the thing is the general secretary of the time, a bloke I got to know years later, a geezer called Rodney Bigstaff, who sadly no longer with us told me at Tony Ben's funeral, actually that he wanted to support Ben. The executive of the union wanted to support Ben and, um, but obviously, as a union employee, he couldn't organise the executive to make sure that they they did that vote. The the Noopy organizer for that campaign, who failed to get the vote for Ben inside of Noopie, was none other than Jeremy Corbyn. Huh. So really, this you know, if he ever has a moment where he dislikes being leader, this is his punishment for fucking it up in 1981. <laughs> Cool. Yeah, oh, yeah.
0: see yeah. I see I see that differently. It sounds yeah. like Yeah, yeah, it sounds like between that and his you know Ukrainian connections that <laughs> he's been playing, <laughs> playing check, check, exactly, check connections. He's bit shit, did I just blow the lid on his ukrainian connections. you
1: have you have we've been trying to keep them buried
0: all right adam you'll have to cut that somebody part call
1: out. the daily mail somebody call adam, the daily
0: yeah, mail no cut that yeah. part out but i guess what i'm it's saying cut. is he's been playing like 12 dimensional chess since the early 80s potentially all led to this point
2: i don't think so so you came to know Tony Benn very late in his life. Yeah. Uh, Tony Benn is a luminary on uh, the labor left. Um, he uh, is is a real uh, touchstone, I think, of the current moment that we're in right now. Uh, you know, Corbyn was in many senses, you know, mentored and fostered by Tony Benn in his early years in Parliament. You know, it's it's. I think I'm not the only one here. Certainly not the only one to to wonder if, if you know if old Tony had had lived to. Well, 110, you know, what would he be thinking and what he'd be saying right now. But uh, I'm sure he's smoking his pipe and smiling down upon us from wherever he is. uh, One would only hope so. To get a little sentimental. But uh, tell us about your relationship with Tony Ben, And maybe that would be a good time to – it's another transition moment, I think, for this latest upsurge. And um, then I want to get to the the kind of uh, forces that uh, led and cohered uh, to create uh, the momentum movement.
1: So I got to know Tony in the last year of his life. Uh, i met him a few times before over the years and everything, but we weren't, you know, we didn't have any sort of meaningful relationship to speak of or whatever. I met him when John McDonnell had a heart attack. Uh, John Mack was supposed to pick him up to take him to a public meeting. And because obviously John's heart was playing up, he couldn't do that. He had to go to hospital. And Tony, being very stubborn, demanded that, one of his uh, helpers, his home helpers, would take him to the train station and put him on a train down to Brighton where the meeting was being held. And John Mack requested that I then went and picked him up from the station and took him home afterwards, which was how our friendship began. begun because he asked me to come back the next week and then that was the same for every couple of weeks in the last year of his life, he was a lovely man my relationship with him because obviously he was in the sort of last blaze of uh, autumn sunshine of his life, you know we didn't do anything together political per se but I did learn a lot of him, he always had he was always very encouraging and always willing to listen and always willing to give advice what I liked, one of the things I liked about him the most was that he would ask me about how my family was doing and not just like, Oh, how's the family doing? Like he would ask after specific people who we haven't spoken at any great length at, but that, you know, he clocked them in stories I was telling them or whatever. Which I always thought was quite sweet. Very engaging, genuine uh, Yeah, no, I was very, very fond of him. Um
0: Putting the social in socialism, if you will.
2: Yeah. Yeah, there you go. There you go. He, he lived it. He lived it in a, in a real profound way. So, tell you know, that th- th- Tony's the year of Tony's passing marked a significant transformation, I would say, in in the movement from, you know, as our friends uh, Leo Panitch and Sam Gendon have termed it, from protest to politics. Mm. So, tell us a little bit about the lead up to the formation of Momentum. You were there from the very start with John Landsman. And um, tell us about some of the forces that were involved in that and how you brought them together and uh, to, to, to become, you know, the momentum that uh, helped to, uh, you know, elect Corbyn t- to leadership of the party.
1: Uh, okay. Well, just to go back just slightly, the November before Tony, Ben passed away, uh, I arranged for John to go and see him because they hadn't seen each other in a number of years. And uh, we went round to... To Tony's flat, and as we were leaving, I realised I was the same age John was in 1981 when Tony ran for deputy, and John was the same age Tony was. And I mentioned this to Tony, hmm. and he leaned in with his characteristic twinkle in his eye and said, Well, let's hope you do a better job next time. Uh, 18 months later, Jeremy Corbyn was leader of the leg Party. Uh, (laughs) with John Lansman being the driving force of that campaign. So if you want to talk about the formation of Momentum, there were discussions largely led by Lansman in the run-up to the 2015 general election about creating some kind of left-wing, intra-party campaigning organisation. But they never really came to anything. There was lots of discussions with the unions and so on. It was supposed to be an attempt to try to use digital democracy and the power of social media to influence the direction of travel of the Labour Party. But it never happened. And then the day after the general election in 2015, where everybody in the Labour movement in Britain was, you know, at a real low because we thought we were going to win the general election. Uh, and Ed Miliband was going to be prime minister, and that would have meant that the Tories were going to be out, and there was going to be some reform to trade union law, and so on. So the conditions would have changed significantly.
0: And this was after about what, like six, seven years of austerity. Five years. Following five the years. Crash?
1: Okay. Yeah. Right. But um, seven years from the crash, five years from like hard Tory austerity, but there had been gotcha. cuts beforehand that uh, new Labour in its dying days had push through so why do you
0: have to keep slamming the party right <laughs> why do you have to keep slamming the party that did more for workers than any government in decades
1: ever it I did more it did more for the it did more for the international working class than did. Lenin's first government um <laughs>
0: Uh, well, I just I just think it's really disingenuous and well, I'm, I think I'm you, sorry. Need stop, you need to stop sowing division.
1: Oh, I'm <laughs> just <laughs> sorry, sorry to have triggered give, you, Amy.
0: Give Blair his due. It's just really disrespectful, <laughs> is what I'm saying.
1: Heartbreaking, isn't it? Um a little more respect. So the day after the general election in 2015, I was sat in a pub in South London with my best mate Alex and Landsman turns up to the balcony of this this pub where we were sitting, his iPad dangling off his neck. He had like a, you know, like a carry case for it, about six pints in his hand, like trying to make his way through the door. Drinks are flying everywhere. He sits down at the table, looks both me and Alex in the eye and says, boys, I think we need to run a candidate. And that was the first time we'd even like thought about running a candidate because our primary worry was, well, we're not going to get anybody on the ballot because the Parliamentary Labour Party is so right-wing. You know, they're never going to do it.
2: This was a run-up a run to the election for leadership where, yeah. where for the first time in a very long time, the left, the Labour left, uh, looked to, like they weren't going to even run a candidate. Is mm, that correct?
1: Yeah. So in the two... Uh, leadership elections prior to that you had the 2010 election where both john McDonnell and diane abbott put their hat in the ring john mcdonald ended up withdrawing i think diane got a lot of support from mps in relation to the nomination process but that wasn't necessarily down to her politics but rather because it was going to be an all-male ballot otherwise right, right so uh, mps wanted a woman's. Uh, a woman's voice to be heard during the leadership election quite rightly and then in 2007 john mcdonald tried to run against gordon brown
2: hey everybody pardon the interruption but i failed to mention at the beginning of the episode that this episode like all the others is brought to you by listeners like you head over to www.patreon.com slash dead pundits and join the dead pundit society today not only will you get the warm and fuzzies of keeping the New Left Agenda alive, but you also have access to our entire back catalog of B-sides from Season 1. And in addition to that, you'll have access to our late show that we do each week. Amy and I record that for our patrons only. It includes all of the the hottest and spiciest takes that we save for our patrons. So I hope you're enjoying this episode with Max Shanley, but it's patrons who keep this project alive and going. So head over to patreon.com slash punnits support the show today. So so uh, John Lansman says, you know, we're going to do this thing. We're not yeah. going to uh, sit this election out. Uh, what was the initial response from other uh, folks in the, in the labor left? Uh, you know, I know Owen Jones at the time was concerned that if the left ran a candidate, they would be crushed. And there was sort of this consensus that the Blairites – were likely to sort of uh, snatch back control of the party due to the failures of uh, the Miliband uh, government or the Miliband leadership, rather. So so what led to Corbyn being uh, pushed up to, to the election?
1: So um, there was a mad scramble for a time as to who would be the candidate. John McDonnell ruled himself out because he was still recovering from ill health in prior years and had promised his family that he wouldn't do it because of all the stress that's involved and so on. There was some talk of running John Trickett, but he was even more apprehensive. And in the end, it all came to a head uh, in a meeting of the Socialist Campaign Group, which is a parliamentary backbench grouping uh, started by Tony Benn in 1982, of which John, Jeremy, Diane, several others were all a part of that Lansman was going to, to have this discussion about, you know, if we were going to run a candidate or not. And I was supposed to meet Lansman for a pint beforehand with Alex, but John had to go off to the meeting and me and Alex had a Young Labour National Committee meeting that we had to go to. And so I met Alex and I said, have we got a candidate yet? And he said, no, no, John's just trying to sort it now. So me and Alex went off to our meeting. Landsman went off to his. And then midway through the meeting, we both get a text saying Jeremy is going to stand. And what had happened was they all went round the table. The various different MPs opting out. And it just so happened that Jeremy was the last one. And John McDonald turned to him and went, "It's your turn, mate." And he went, oh, "All right then." That's and the and the rest is
2: history. So and the re- say. well.
1: Yeah, I mean, not it quite. was in a mag,
2: quite quite a bit had. To, I mean, we're not going to end the episode. Don't get me wrong. No. but uh, quite a lot had to sort of uh, come 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 about before uh, we
1: could. He could be the Jeremy Corbyn that we know today. Well, we had to get Jeremy uh, on the ballot, and this yeah, was going to be a real problem, on. right? Because we knew that the majority of the MPs didn't support him. Um, Sorry,
0: can I just can I just get you to clarify, um, for those who are in the states. What does the process of getting someone on the ballot internally within the Labour Party, what does that involve?
1: So you have to be nominated by, it was 35 MPs, Jeremy had to be nominated by 35 Labour Members of Parliament to even be considered eligible for the ballot. Perfect. So not constituency parties or anything.
0: No, 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 yeah.
1: Right. So it's a very it's an
2: internal process. For yeah. In it's incredibly not not a membership driven uh, no. sort of process, no. at all. anti-democratic no. and all the rest of it. it smoke robots, filled back rooms and all that. Yeah. towards exactly.
0: Factionalism and those who've been brown nosing for years. Not yeah, the rest,
1: yeah. basically. Mm-hmm. And so the way that
2: the way that Alex Nuns tells it in his book, The Candidate, we're going to have Alex on the show very soon. Uh, but the way that he tells it, I want to see if this sort of comports with the way that you experienced it on the ground at the time. The way that he tells the story is that the kind of just the the, just the the bureaucratism of and the 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 cronyism of of the the PLP during the post Blair years was such that it, you know there's just a bunch of just mediocre nobodies uh, that still that sort largely of occupied, is to be honest. Yeah, I mean, still, still for the most part, I mean, there hasn't it hasn't been enough time gone by to really replace them with real robust, exciting, uh, you know, uh, parliamentarians, but. But uh, you know, at the time, there just wasn't a whole lot out there. And so as soon as – you know, somewhat paradoxically or unexpectedly perhaps, as soon as Jeremy's name was on the ballot, uh, he, he got a lot of support straight away
1: and not even just from the people that you might expect. Well, he got a lot of support from the grassroots, right? He topped the nominations in terms of constituency-led parties, more constituency-led parties, which are the local labour parties, local chapters, I think you've called them in America – overwhelmingly nominated Jeremy for leader of the party. And this was like the first real sign that, you know, there was this big gap between the membership and the MPs. We all sort of knew it, but it was, you know, evidence. Here you go. So, yeah, so it was a real scramble to try and get him on the ballot. I was of the opinion right from the off that I thought if we got on the ballot, we could win because the Ed Miliband had changed the rules in the way in which the leader was elected. So it was... Yeah, explain that to the audience.
2: I don't don't expect many will will know. Yeah,
1: so the Electoral College, which I spoke about earlier on, was basically done in blocks. So it was a third, a third, a third. So to decide the leader or deputy leader of the party, the entire party membership had a third of the vote. Trade unions had a third of the vote. And that's trade union members who are affiliated supporters of the Labour Party. And then a third of Labour MPs had the vote. This was changed by Ed Miliband, you know, actually in a sort of anti union drive <laughs> right. um, trying to disempower the
2: union, thinking that people who didn 't show up the the sort of uh, the nutters who show up to the meetings were cap were uh, you know mar- capitalizing the the, the vote and the process yeah. and, and the hope was that the people who sort of stay at home and pay their dues uh, were more conservative and more quote-unquote practically minded than the uh, the nutty activists, uh, so well, to speak. On, it turned well, out to
1: backfire uh, on those folks. It backfired day. massively because what the rule change also did was not only did it scrap that electoral system so it became a policy of one member, one vote. For three pounds, you could join the party as a registered supporter and vote in the leadership contests. Now, the Labour rights thinking on this was that the British people are way to the right of the Labour membership. So, that you know, they'll always vote for us. That was their sort of thinking. It was outright complacency. Right. Um, just total detachment from... Total from detachment from, folks from... Well, not affiliated total yet. detachment from reality, to be honest. But I always thought that so long as we could get on the ballot, then we could win because Jeremy had a lot of support in the social movements. Because he's been in and around them for years, the you know one of the leaders of the anti-war movement, through which is arguably the lead, you know after the labor movement sort of the leading social movement in Britain. And so he got on the ballot. It wasn't always for certain that he was going to get on the ballot. If you read Alex nun's excellent book, you'll see in there it came down to like the last two minutes. Landsman actually called me up the night before. I was sat in my room at Ruskin College, writing an essay. I actually ended up dropping out about a week later. That's the irony of all of this. And uh, we were chatting away, and he said we're going to get on the ballot. So I thought, well, I better put a bet on then. Yeah. So I went. I went <laughs> on to uh, Ladbrokes, and they had Jeremy at a hundred to one. So I thought, well, I'll bang a hundred quid on that. Yeah, this is worth the risk. Absolutely. And continued having my conversation with John, and didn't fucking put the bet on. Oh, you fucked up. <laughs> ten grand.
2: Oh, you messed. Yeah, you messed up, my friend. You fucking
1: Landsman, mate. I blame him. He owes, you, <laughs> he, busy. Owes you, he owes you ten grand.
0: But you're busy betting on the
1: future. Oh yeah, well you know, <laughs> got do what you got. You got to do what you got to do. Um, so so, Corbyn uh, won won leadership. So let's, let's, well, no, let's no, no 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 no, because it's more no. complicated than that. I'm sorry, he so got he, on the ballot. My so mistake. He gets, my so mistake. he gets on right, the ballot. Right, he right. gets on the ballot, and then there's this like mad scramble to get people signed up. I remember there was a big anti austerity demonstration happening the weekend that Jeremy announced that he was standing, and I went along with a load of friends, and it ended with a rally in Parliament Square, which Jeremy addressed, and you had loads of people majority because the basis of the anti-austerity movement in britain largely comes from the anti-war movement and you know the the rise of the anti-war movement in the modern era uh, in britain is obviously around iraq right so a lot of these people have always had a very skeptical position on the Labour party this was the stop the war coalition yeah stop among, the war coalition everything like that but they were all very encouraging and there were literally uh got. A, dozens of people going around Parliament Square handing out leaflets and sign-up sheets to get people signing up as registered supporters. And loads of people did because they had faith in Jeremy Corbyn because Jeremy Corbyn had always had faith in them. That was the real sign to me, that, like concrete, that something was going to happen, something big. We might not win, but we might come second. But the really big deal for me, when I knew it was definitely 100% a goer, was one of the leaders of Stop the War Coalition, who's never been in the Labour Party, Wow, Uh, always been in revolutionary organisations, to this day still considers himself a revolutionary socialist, calls me up and goes, Max, can I, as a revolutionary socialist, join the Labour Party as a registered supporter so I can vote for Jeremy? And I said, yeah, of course you can. That's well within the rules. And he did. But... That was the real sort of sign to me that if people who have spent their whole life basically saying that the Labour Party is worth nothing, it's not worth engaging in, it can never be changed, but here is a candidate for whom can change their mind, well, then we can change the mind not only of them, but the party membership and the country. Um, And then we knew within about four weeks that Jeremy was going to win. Because we did phone banking and everything. And my mate Alex, who I told you about earlier on, he ended up running the organization aspect of the campaign. So he was in charge of all the organizers. Yeah. So uh, uh, Jeremy
2: very quickly won the support of the major trade union blocks there, which is, uh, you know, not a foregone conclusion. No. Um, The trade unions tend to be a little bit more... There was grassroots rebellions
1: in the unions that precipitated that. So in unison, for example their activists revolted against their choice which was they wanted jeremy corbyn but the union bureaucracy wanted andy burnham similar sort of situation in unite the, if the if the rumors are true uh, i wouldn't like to speculate but if the rumors are true Len mccluskey was very much in favor of nominating andy burnham right who was at the who was from a blairite background but seen as sort of Trying to move into a sort of soft left position. Now, the soft left are a whole different kettle of fish, which we can talk about at length later on. But
2: that was how that was how fab.
1: left that was how left <laughs> people thought you could reasonably go at the time.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, so, but it was a, a revolt on the unite executive that led to Jeremy being the candidate that they backed because he was the only one that believed in everything that the rest of the movement believed in.
2: Yeah, I think that's a crucial point for the United States context as well, because it's often presupposed that, well, yeah, of course the, the, the trade unions were going to back Corbyn in this venture. No, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, there's this sort of romanticization of the British working class and the ties that the labor left allegedly have uh, with the trade unions. And, and it's, it's really no different than anywhere else. Uh, you know, certainly in the, in the U.S., You know, the trade union bureaucracy is in favor of the kind of neoliberal wing of the Democratic Party. Um, They were hesitant and and almost none of them sort of came out for Bernie Sanders during the primaries. I mean, other um, than
0: the nurses, they all back Hillary. Yeah.
2: The nurses and united electrical some of the independent the non-affiliated uh, the non-afl cio affiliated uh, trade unions of course backed uh, sanders but but i think that's instructive for for us over here across the pond and for people across the world uh, it wasn't a foregone conclusion that the trade unions would have backed corbin no
1: sense. no uh, and it was still a long seen as a long shot at the time mm. but um as, as i was trying to say a minute ago alex who i spoke about earlier on he was in charge of the organizers on the campaign and thus in charge of the phone banking. So he was getting all of the returns on a daily basis of how, you know how people were indicating they were going to vote and about three weeks into the campaign he had it all totted up and he worked out that we were about to we were going to get about sixty percent of the vote uh, mm-hmm. in the end mm-hmm. Jeremy won fifty nine point five yeah yeah uh, so you know pretty much spot on but I mean. It shocked everyone. Sixty
2: percent. Sh- I want to be clear for my audience. Sixty percent in a four-way race. Yeah, I mean that's 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 decisive. I mean that's, the, that's the, beyond decisive.
1: The sort of uh, Blairite orthodox candidate, Liz Kendall, she got four and a half percent of the vote, and this wow. was the candidate that a wow. significant proportion of the parliamentary Labour Party got behind. Yeah. So let's so let's speed ahead is, here. Sorry, go ahead.
0: So Blairism is, dead, um, Benism alive. Yeah, like with such a decisive victory, I imagine it precisely that point. They all came out, had press conferences in which they ate humble pie mm. and got on board with the carbon agenda. yeah?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Lol, no. So, so that prefigures my question. Take take us from the election victory uh, for uh, the leadership position to uh, the, the uh, would be coup that was uh, that Liz Kendall's four uh, percent showing. You know,
1: emboldened her to uh, try try to uh, try to commit there. Uh. So Jeremy was elected but immediately sparked a series of resignations from the shadow cabinet and uh, almost immediately like literally within a minute of him being announced an MP resigned because their plan once they knew he was going to win was to basically try to make the Labour Party ungovernable and also make it sort of constitutionally impossible for him to remain as leader of the opposition even if he was leader of the Labour Party. So, a lot of m p s wouldn 't work with him. He initially wrongly in my opinion, but initially set up a a sort of a shadow cabinet of all talents, so various people from different wings of the party but crucially, he appointed mcdonald John McDonald was his shadow chancellor as his treasury man um, which most of the unions were against they wanted They wanted somebody a bit more soft, and the reasoning was that you know John McDonald probably is the most. Uh, radical Labour MP of the late 20th century. and But also uh, to the point of, you know, he always, he stands up for the grassroots and he's that means he's also stood up for the grassroots against union bureaucracy sometimes, which is why the union bureaucracies at the time didn't have so much of a favourable opinion of him. I'm glad that's changed now. Um, right, right. But the rest of the Shadow Cabinet were really a mixed bunch of all different shades of Labour right. And they weren't with the agenda. They weren't with the programme. They still wanted to carry on as they always had. And they wanted to try to put limits on what Jeremy could do. At the same time, you had the Labour Party machinery who, well, large part, largely insubordinate. Just tr- really trying to um, undermine. Really, him, really trying to un- trying really to do. trying to undermine him. Refusing Despite all of refu- the olive branches that he refu- extended. Refusing yeah, in the early days. Yeah, refusing to hire staff for him. All sorts, all sorts, and then it all comes to a head after the European Union. Well, we have the local elections, which are terrible. Uh, Labour lose a load of seats. And MPs are like, right, it's time for Jeremy to go. Keep in mind, he's only been leader for six months at that point, right? So they've not even given him a chance. The party machinery sort of wasn't fully mobilised in the right places during those local elections. And that was because those choices were taken out of Jeremy's control and decided by party staffers who were all friends with all these councillors and who many of them are councillors themselves. So they would only go and campaign in constituencies where right-wingers were candidates and so on and coordinate canvassing to be done there and so on. So that happens. You then have the European Union referendum. And because of the splits in the party, the Labour Party essentially had to run two campaigns. The campaign of the Leader's Office, which was for uh, Remain and Reform, sustain the EU and we'll change it, which is an utterly naive position in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Uh, But... That's another topic entirely. And then you had the incredibly pro-business campaign, Labour campaign, which was being run by the Labour Party machinery and the the MPs, the old right MPs, led by Alan Johnson, who's a former union general secretary, but died in the Wall Blairite. And obviously, Britain voted to leave the European Union. And so the Labour MPs thought, well... There's only one person to blame for Britain leaving the EU. So it all comes down to one man at the end of the day. And that man was Jeremy Corbyn. So they decided to unconstitutionally, because there's no mechanism for this in the Labour Party book, hold a revolt against him and try and do him in. They held uh, a meeting of the Parliamentary Lay Party where they were going to hold a no-confidence ballot. Momentum, which existed by this point, but was in its sort of early stages, organised a rally at which I think about 20,000 people turned up. Uh, Spare the notice, only announced the the night before to defend it. So you had this great scene of 200 or so MPs sat in a room in Houses of Parliament and outside 20,000 people protesting at what they were trying to do. And they overwhelmingly yeah. rejected, you know, Jeremy's continued leadership, voted no confidence in him, and nominated a former pharmaceutical uh, industry <laughs> worker, Owen Smith, as their candidate to run against him. A real um, underwhelming guy there, Owen a Smith. real Just no- real,
2: nothing, just total fucking uh,
1: mediocre man. Well, he did say some interesting things on the campaign. For example, he had to fight 300 lads to win his wife's hand in marriage. <laughs>
2: yeah, I remember that. That was creepy. He,
1: he, totally has, creepy. he has a 39-inch penis, apparently. <laughs> he also said that. <laughs> This, was this like like is all Cruz true, I'm not level making it creepiness. up, you
2: can look it up. No, it's, it's true, yeah. So she was the most beautiful girl in the school and he had to fight off 300, 300 guys to, to to win her hand or whatever. It
1: was very creepy, yeah. very Ted Cruz-esque, I would say, here in the US. Yeah, Just but, kind of put also, a shiver down your spine. And also, like Ted Cruz, Owen Smith looks just like the Zodiac Killer. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah. And there was actually a Facebook page run at the time called Owen Smith is the Zodiac Killer which was <laughs> That's
2: brilliant. Which was I want to talk funny. about the uh, momentum in red london uh, meme campaigns here uh, pretty soon. Um, we'll flag that.
1: So, uh yeah, he wanted to smash the prime minister Theresa May back onto her heels. He also said that, but his best moment was the the near the the final hustings of of the campaign, where he said that we should sit down and have tea, a cup of tea with ISIS. What the fuck? I, know. I think that what sounds like kind
0: of kind of good idea. Everyone's been, you know, um, there are major stories of de-radicalisation through a cup
1: of tea breakfast. Yeah, it's ta- no, it's but It's a he, tale
0: as old as time.
1: So you know, he Jeremy. Then I, I remember it because it was so funny. He like Jeremy just turned away. What? What are you saying? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. this is a man who regularly gets accused of being a terrorist sympathizer, being right, to the right, right, right. of <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Jeremy, being to the right of someone on foreign policy. Is uh <laughs> I don't want to say
2: left or right. I just want to say being on the
1: same end, yeah, on the like same end the of so, uh, foreign policy. But yeah, so Owen Smith lost. He got smashed. Jeremy's vote went up, but. One of the things that the party machinery did during the first campaign and the second campaign was all these people who were signing up as registered supporters to vote. You know, they were doing massive trawls of their social media to find if they'd ever said anything anti-Labour or pro any other party. And if they had, then they would be barred from voting.
0: So, um, so what you're saying is that, um, that call-out culture... Inadvertently supports the more conservative end of radical organising. That's weird. I
1: always thought it
0: made things more progressive to be.
1: Yeah. No, but if it, you know, if people were saying things like, um, you know, for, so there were a lot of people who joined the party to vote for Germany who would vote for the Green yeah. Party at the. General they had like election. a massive
0: influx. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so you'd had all these people who tweeted that they'd voted green or whatever, and you had the Labour machinery being like, "All right, then you don't get to vote in the Labour leadership and election." No,
0: and there was no organisational, or institutional basis on which to presuppose no. that, yeah? yeah. No,
1: just uh, it's contrary to this rule. That we just made up. The Labour Party or whatever, yeah. They would just right. find some kind of excuse, and they did this during the second leadership campaign as well. The other big problem was that. During all of this period, Corbyn didn't have control of the National Executive Committee. The left wasn't running the party in any meaningful sense. It was office without power, Yeah, um, held the office of leader, but basically, for all intents and purposes, crippled elsewhere, crippled in Parliament, crippled in the party, couldn't do anything. Uh, the NEC voted to increase the cost of becoming a registered supporter the second time from £3 to £25, which meant there were cases of people who literally starved so that they could afford to vote for Jeremy Corbyn because they thought Jeremy Corbyn represented the best hope for them having a better life.
2: Jesus.
1: You know, you can read, people have written blogs about it and stuff, how they didn't eat for a couple of days, so they had enough money to, to to pay for the ticket.
0: Well, they're going to need to get used to it with the bread lines that'll be coming.
1: So, oh, obviously. Good start. Well, no, yeah. we're going to put a bread maker in every home. <laughs> That's the that. Chick- it's going to be in chicken the next in manifesto. Pot? You heard it here: yeah, right. chicken in every pot, ice pick in every trot. <laughs> home bread maker. At it home took me for a second. Long.
2: I was like, wait, did you wait? Yeah. Well, okay, he did. He did say that, folks. Yeah. yeah. Uh, don't at me. About have you never that heard
1: one. that phrase before?
2: No, I have not. Oh, I, I thought not. that Where was quite parley.
1: No, I haven't. I don't know if I've heard that. No. What say it but one more time? I'm,
0: is it called pork barreling over there?
1: Maybe? I d I don't know. So chicken uh, chicken in the pot and ice chicken pick in, in every, every trot. Yeah.
2: Chicken in every pot and ice pick in every trot.
1: Yeah.
2: Don't at me, audience.
1: No Okay. Look, I, no, I we, was a trotsky. We should all. I'm not so much a fan of the ice pick. I actually think we should take the lead from uh, Trotsky on this one and just, yeah. you know, embrace putting people under the ice like he did at Kronstadt. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> Fuck me, Max. You're getting
1: me in trouble, man. Not I know. That I I'm doing this on purpose, you know. Not, to, not that I disagree. I'm not actually being the, serious. Like, I don't I mean, actually it, believe in putting but, people under the ice, but, honestly. you know, I think that's something that. Both Trotskyists and Stalinists can get behind the concept of ice dunking.
2: He wasn't. He wasn't trying to kill him. He was trying to freeze him uh, for the future. Uh, yeah. When, you know, cryo technology, uh, you know, came about and then we could sort of bring them back to life as like zombie uh, so anarcho not anarcho- So
1: much, not so much cryogenics, but kronstadtgenics. Kron- kronstadtgenics.
0: I <laughs> feel like, guys, guys, I've just had a bit of a light bulb moment here. Yeah. Um, I feel like there is definitely a through line between that ethos and some of the wacky shit that Peter Thiel is into. And since we're trying to build, like, a big coalition, I feel like we could sell some of the libertarian tech bros on socialism through cryogenic freezing.
2: So we just tell them that Trotsky was in favor of putting uh, – uh, you know, He was putting all anarcho- about Bolson drinking young blood. Yeah. <laughs> Vamp- so you're S- suggesting that Trotsky it- was a vampire who, uh, who lived so long by sucking the blood – of of uh, fourth internationalists.
0: What I'm suggesting. What have you heard of you, what you I'm suggesting record. is the blockchain. Basically, ah, you lost yeah. me
2: there,
1: mate. You lost blockchain me.
2: socialism. <laughs> yeah. Is that the bit? Is that bit? Are we talking bitcoins here? <laughs> We're talking it's all bitcoins,
1: bitcoin. man. I have a bitcoin story. Let me oh. guess. You tried to buy a bunch of
0: Bitcoin, and you're too busy talking to Tony Ban and then no, no, you no. later you realise. No. So not it was
1: too. when I was working. It was when I was working at the university at the time, and I was in charge of three hundred odd computers by myself. So I had a plan. But you're to sitting install. on a
0: fortune there, mate. This was you, like you, Do you know how much you could to, be mining is, right there? Listen,
1: listen, mate. This is 2009. So I wanted <laughs> to start mining, right? And I want, and I also was going to get a loan out and buy three grands <laughs> worth of bitcoins. This was when they were pennies at the time. <laughs> three grands worth of worked,
0: bitcoin, you'd be y- fucking Peter Dingle yeah, now. I,
1: I would be yeah. So basically, yeah, the geezers I worked with, the geezers I worked with, who were in my trade union branch, told me not to do it because it sounded like a mad idea. (laughs) Right? You know, I listen to the the geezers. Never listen to the geese. And so I, I'd be worth hundreds of millions right now. Yeah. When it comes to blockchain, never. You probably be, would have I'd sold just, them when they crashed like no, any No, 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 no. I would have shorted the market, mate. Yeah, yeah. Look, Marxists yeah. understand capitalism better than the capitalist. You could have bankrolled the socialist
2: yeah. movement. Well, that's what I would North. have done.
1: That's what I would have done. Yeah. So... Because I'm not really a materialistic person. Well, you're, you're, I mean, obviously, you don't really people, own like,
2: anything. I, I wouldn't have presumed you'd have, bought, you'd have bought a yacht. or
1: anything No, like that. no, no. Of course, I would have bought myself a little flat or something. Yeah, get yourself a place to live. And then just you know. giving myself yeah, but a if salary. You're in
0: London, and then the rest, yeah, but- I would have
1: just the rest. I would have just invested in in building for socialism.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, we fucked up twice. There's
2: several major world historic fuck ups in this interview, and that was certainly one of them. So. Moving on. Jeremy is now leader of the party. He survived the coup. Let's talk about momentum. We brought you on uh, to talk about a lot of things. You're a man of many stories. You have a lot of connections uh, on the labor left. Interesting guy for someone your age. But uh, let's get to brass tacks here. Talk to me about momentum. What is this thing? It's this kind of enigma wrapped in a shell of an enigma. What is it? The, I don't know if I fucked that up, but you know what it is. People from across the world. Are phoning you guys and 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 asking sort of like what is the secret? What is this thing momentum? How do we do this here in our country? What's the magic bullet? Uh, and I sort of already know what you're going to say there. I mean, there is no such magic.
1: There isn't uh, it, so. recipe.
2: Uh, so tell us what tell us. The, so then, uh, take tell us what it, it really is then. In that
1: case, so momentum is the continuation of Jeremy Corbyn's first leadership campaign and the vibrancy and sort of. Popular electricity that that generated amongst the masses. The idea behind Momentum was to keep the campaign going. Uh, You know, this is the Jeremy's first leadership campaign. It wasn't just about winning the leadership of the Labour Party. It was about transforming the party as a whole from sort of a moribund social democratic party into a transformative socialist one. Uh, And Momentum was set up to be the vehicle for that. So it was to draw in the new people and the old and bring them together, to change the country and subsequently society, to build a movement, but also build the party.
2: No, I mean, we, we tried something similar to that in the United States. And I say we, I mean, you know, a handful of It was just you, was former, you, Adam, on your own. It was just me. Well, if it was just me, we would have succeeded. You but and a couple of Craigslist ads. Clearly it wasn't. Uh, we, look, you, you walk into the bathroom, you tap twice, you drop the twenty, and and you uh, you know you, you go about your business. I don't know how you fucked that up so severely. Anyway, uh, wait, what are we talking about? Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about We're Talking either. about sounds politics
1: a bit, sounds a bit wrong, you know. <laughs>
2: So in the United States, uh, we had a formation, we still have a formation. It's called Our Revolution, which was yeah. started by a number of Bernie top level Bernie staffers yeah. trying to attempt to do something that around the same time, I would say, hmm. that momentum turned out to be. Um and it and it is not really it certainly hasn't taken off in even remotely the way that momentum has. And we could talk about the reasons for that, but nonetheless, I mean, I think so so speculate for me. What do you think the key differences are? I mean, of course, uh, you know, the UK is smaller. I think that helps a little bit. You know, the United States is a massive country with a very large population, a lot of diversity there culturally, politically, and, and, and so on. So, so that 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 might be something there might be something to that, however i mean there's there's more so so speculate on on some of the some of the differences there that that you see uh, not only in the u s but u s but other formations in, in say Germany and uh, France and elsewhere
1: well I actually think that the differences have become less and less over time because if anything momentum has become due to the pressures that are put upon it from elsewhere far more moderate in its sort of expectations and demands, and a lot more focused on electoralism, uh, which I know our revolution is largely about, isn't it? It's about getting, you know, Bernie crats selected in primaries across the country and so on. And Momentum is doing that to a certain part. But the big drive was to try to build social movements, but also to build solidarity networks around the country that could help people resist Tory rule and austerity. We've not got that far down the road in regards to doing that. But in terms of democratising the party and building the party, that has obviously increased massively. Momentum was central to Labour winning the 40% of the vote that it did at the general election. The Labour Party machinery was so apathetic that they just weren't even bothering. They were piling resources only into sort of safe Labour seats where right wingers were standing. And so it was like, it basically became Momentum's job to like fill the gap. Uh, so they ran this big on seat campaign. where They bust in activists from all around the country. I say bust in; these people came of their own accord, but you know what I mean. To get them out canvassing and stuff like that, and a large part of Momentum's focus has sadly been on electoral projects. So there probably aren't as many differences as you would expect. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think maybe perhaps the tactics are a little different. I, I certainly don't want to ta- speak for the tactics, every – The tactics are different, but you need to think of momentum more as being in the British context of like, you know, it's obviously different in America because we actually do have some sort of mainstream socialist tradition that people are aware of. Well, um, the Labour Party is also an actual vehicle it's of an, policy. You know, it's I mean, whereas great, the Democratic
2: Party second is second great
1: party of state.
2: The Democratic Party uh, is not a party; it's,
1: it's a, brand, not a party it? at all.
2: It's a brand. It's it's an electoral ballot line with a couple figureheads uh, yeah. sort of collecting money at the top.
1: And that was how the Labour Party was becoming. And really, this is the process of, of reversing it, but also going beyond it at the same time. But, uh, I mean, what I would say is I don't think both are socialist organisations. I don't think Momentum is a socialist organisation, just so I don't think our revolution is either. They're both left-wing campaigning groups. But the actual task of, as uh, Tony Ben put it at his selection meeting when he first did to be an MP, which is of, you know, making, teaching and keeping socialists, isn't something I think neither organisation has particularly done. Do you? Does our does know. our revolution do massive? Yeah, momentum Certainly isn't not. doing I mean, much they're, political they're, they're education either.
2: I think our revolution are typically the types of folks who find even even a more uh a more reasonable practically oriented uh, grouping like democratic socialists of america mm. they find them too far left too too wacky for their tastes or whatever um and in some senses you know dsa has a lot of variety in there i mean we have like far you know, maoists uh, alongside yeah uh just sort of uh you know social democrats yeah
1: politically so, momentum is more like the dsa and t- more moderate yeah. But right. like,
2: it, I think they, the, that that's a, a closer parallel. Where DSA has been successful electorally, you see these massive uh, uh, door knocking campaigns that seem to be very similar to what we saw uh, over there, uh, you know, just uh, last month or two months ago, by whenever that was. Um,
1: but the yeah. thing the thing is, is that you need to build the type of social infrastructure, solidarity infrastructure within society. Whereby by like going and knocking on people's doors actually becomes a redundant task because people vote for lay party or the Democrats of their own accord because they can trust them and they believe in them. And that, you know, that's the task we're sort of engaging in is to win people's hearts and their minds. And the only way to win their minds is, 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 you know, is to give them an understanding of the way in which the world works. You know, we, we've, just this weekend, we had a march of five thousand fascists in Britain. Yeah, so, uh, so. who you know ended up fighting with the police and everything. And free uh, Tommy Robinson. Free Tommy Robert Robinson. To For those of you who don't know, Tommy Robinson is the alias of a geezer called Stephen Yaxley Lennon, who owns a series of tanning shops. You know, with uh, like sunbeds in, in a place called Luton, uh, in Bedfordshire, which was which sort of grew as an overspill from London.
0: Which is a long way of saying a free speech martyr,
1: I might add. Yeah. Well, no. So Tommy Robinson founded the English <laughs> Defence League, right? Which, you know, has been at the forefront of far-right revival in Britain. He's recently been sent to jail for contempt of court because uh, there was a case where a nonce was on trial, uh, a paedophile, and... Tommy basically went there to try and like disrupt the court hearing, Uh, kept shouting Muslim paedophiles, da-da-da-da-da, all different sorts of shit. And he ended up getting sent to prison, right? And it could have ended with the trial being a mistrial, which would have meant that this wrong and would never have been brought to justice or anything. But all Tommy's supporters are being like, oh, he's been locked up because he was trying to expose the truth. Yeah, Yeah, Um, this is true. And
2: uh, he's trying to move to some kind of right-wing fascist vigilante justice model yeah, or something like that in a very basically. disturbing sort of way. Trying to build his his street cred by uh, yeah. So he's gone. So
1: he's gone to jail. So he's gone to jail, and there's people, you know, free Tommy Robinson. I was uh, I had a train journey yesterday, and when I got back to my home station, I was walking down the uh, stairs, and I noticed that somebody had stuck a load of free Tommy Robinson stickers all over them. So this is obviously a thing now. Yeah, trying to make... It's
0: okay to be white, guys.
1: (laughs) But the the root of a lot of these people's problems isn't down to immigration at all. You know, it is down to... No way. It's down to their relationship with capital. So it's our job to explain that to them (laughs) and convince them that that is the case. Right on. So let's
2: move, uh, you know, there's so much more here to talk about with momentum and you certainly can rope that in and bring that in, but we've got to bring this uh, d- to a close here in the coming 10 or 15 minutes. I'm
1: sorry for all my rambling. No,
2: no, not at all. No, this that's is, it, why th- you th- that's the best part. This is the fun part. I I don't like to ask very specific questions. I like to kind of keep things flowing and open. And I think uh, this has been really interesting for a lot of us, particularly those who don't have that sort of uh, background in the UK or, you know, political culture or certainly not the Labor Party itself. Uh, so this has been good, but let's move forward and let's talk a little bit about what the, the theme of Dead Pundits has been, te- you know, one of, the, one of the central themes that we've been sort of weaving over the past year, year and a half here, which is – what are some of the challenges uh, that the Corbin government are going to face? I mean, the manifesto uh, came out last summer and uh, it was very bold. It has a, a very explicit uh, vision for moving towards uh, the democratization of both uh, the political sphere and the economic sphere. And, you know, it's going to face a lot of challenges, not only in uh, the European Union, um, as uh, Kostas Lapovitsas has uh, sort of written about recently and, uh, and many others. But uh, you know, he's going to come up a lot, against a lot of challenges with the sort of uh, the Blairite <laughs> Labor Party City of London accord, right? which is that we won't bother you, the bankers, so long as you, the bankers, promise to sort of give us some kickbacks so we can provide a, a small you know, modicum of social services or whatever. And, and clearly the Corbyn vision is going to upend that relationship and, and shake down a lot of people who have been profiteering off of the collapse of the British welfare state for, for decades. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, there's a big, big question. There's a lot of components there, but t- t- tell me a little bit about what comes to mind for you in terms of uh, what will need to happen in order to achieve this uh, bold strategy.
1: Okay, so I think we need to talk about politics and not so much about policies mm-hmm. uh, because on the face of it, you know, any social democratic party in the world could implement the policies, or at least attempt to implement the policies that we're suggesting, but it's the the substance behind them that matters, yeah. The biggest challenges that it's going to face are sort of threefold. It's going to be from organised capital, obviously, more broadly, which will include the media, the state, and the economy. So we've had a long-term capital strike in Britain. Um for a number of decades, you know, investment has been very, very low. So we've got to we've got to break that as an immediate priority, just to get the economy up and going again. Get manufacturing industry built, build up new cooperatives. But obviously, to do that, we have to we have to be able to use the state. And there's going to be a lot of opposition, in my opinion, just based on past experience. A lot of the stuff that Tony Ben had to deal with when he was secretary of state for industry during which time jeremy corbyn was one of his unofficial advisors there's a brilliant documentary about this on youtube called against the tide i mm. urge all yeah. listeners of this show to to watch it because it's very good it's a I real eye opener of like what happens so tony ben just a little snippet tony ben went into the department of industry probably on the most with the most radical socialist uh, economic plan for well, that we'd seen in the West for decades. And the first thing uh, his permanent secretary, the civil servant who responds directly to the minister, said to him was, I assume you have no plans of actually implementing this. This is how we can make it look like you're implementing what you want, but we're not actually going to implement what you want. And they then spent months and months and months trying to subvert him and they did deals with the right wing of the Labour Party, you know, with Harold Wilson's office and so on, to water down the bill. Now, that's just in one department. How do you think the Treasury is going to react when John MacDonald rocks up and wants to start deficit spending? Like, it's you know, it's not going to be a pleasant experience. And at the lower levels of the civil service, I think they'll be a lot more receptive because they've been some of the most sort of bashed during the austerity era public sector employees have been some of the most effective you know they've their wages have been frozen for 10 years they've not had a pay rise in 10 years uh, you know for them they're still living off 2008 money which you know is worth a lot less than two thousand eighteen money so i think they'll be all right the media we're going to have massive problems with because we have one of the most right-wing press in the world you lot bang on about, you know, Fox News and everything, but where do you think <laughs> Rupert Murdoch learnt, learnt his trade? He learned yeah. it in Britain. Yeah. Uh, Look, if we
0: um... wanted to take credit for Rupert Murdoch, I think
1: we well, might we be sort of have to take, We sort of have to take credit for him as well because... Uh, he moved over. He came as a Rhodes Scholar, didn't he, to Oxford University when he was eight. When he was eighteen. Or okay. Whatever. Okay. Listen. Sorry. Listen. Some Australia of has best. the
2: shittiest media. The UK has the second shittiest media, and uh, the United States has the third shittiest. Uh, we're number. We're still number one. I just. Uh,
1: yeah, well, I'm, your I'm media down. stars end up running your country, mate.
2: <laughs> <laughs> they do. They do. Just get you a reality show, Max. You'll be uh, prime minister before uh, the decades up. God, that's a I
1: mean anyway. isn't it? <laughs> anyway
2: So you're talking about Some of the transformations That the Corbyn government Has in mind John MacDonald Taking over the Chancellor Of the Exchequer uh, Sort of running Democratising the
1: economy We're going to try And democratizing double the economy. We're going to try And double the size Of the cooperative sector In Britain
2: now, that's going to be a key, a key move there because it seems like there's only so many uh, market mechanisms that can take place without throwing off all types of uh, capitalist limitations, well, like, you know, battery, so this is trade, the deficit, and all that kind of crap. And so you're going to have to be very creative in the way that, that, you, that you pull this off. Exactly. Ex- cooper- cooperatives have a lot of promise there, in a sense.
1: Exactly. Um, you know, we have set ourselves an almost impossible task in many ways. Demo- you know, the, even Jeremy Wynne leadership was a seemingly impossible task. Task. But what I mean is, you know, the British state is one of the oldest continuous states in the world. You know, there was a revolution in the 1600s, but just a different part of the bourgeoisie took over the old operation and have continued on. So we've, you know, there's never been that sort of rupture. Uh, and it's a very conservative state, oldest imperial state in the world, uh, like uh, in the sort of modern sense. And the oldest capitalist state in the world, because capitalism began here, which is why I also like to think that it will end here. But
2: um, <laughs> <laughs> nice.
1: Um, so, and you, you're going to have John McDonnell, uh, you know, a committed Marxist, rocking up as Chancellor right. of the you know, oldest capitalist country in the world, do you really think it's, everything's going to be fine and dandy? I don't. And this is why I mean it's more more than policies and about politics because, you know, the policies are very sort of bog-standard social democracy on the face of it. But the po- it's the politics behind them which determines whether or not they'll be implemented and whether they'll be implemented to their fullest extent. And by their fullest extent, I mean taking power away from the state and handing it back to the people. One of the things people often forget about the sort of tradition that Jeremy Corbyn represents, which we call Corbynism now, uh, but, you know, really has its roots in Bennism. All that was all about... It wasn't about massive state control. It was about transferring power from the state to the workers. Because, you know, once you have it, you're not going to give it up, are you? And... Whether it is a sustainable sort of policy platform will be determined as to how far we can go down the road of democratising the British state and getting as much involvement of the people of this country in the running of their own government as possible. Because it can't just simply be a case of you, you catapult a group of MPs into Parliament and then you go, right, that's it, job done. Right, Which right, is the right. bog standard social democratic line, and in many ways, this was always my worry of what was going to happen with um, with Bernie.
2: Yeah, right. You know,
1: right, he spoke exactly. an awful lot about needing the movement a movement behind him, and he was saying that for the right reasons. I don't think think Bernie gets denigrated far too much on the american left as just another social democrat but he's not just another social democrat
2: well that's the way to prove your bona fides over here you know uh you know your your true socialist capital t capital s bona fides is to bash on bernie i mean uh yeah yeah we we've seen a lot of that for sure there's a certain maximalism that reigns over here that, that you just don't see uh, en masse on the, on the left in, in the UK. And, and maybe we can sort of wrap up the show by making some of those parallels and talking about that a little bit. Because I think one of the real key differences culturally, I would say, in particular, with momentum versus the, the, the left in the US for sure, is is there, isn't, there doesn't seem to be the same kind of uh, sappy liberal moralism. On the on the British left, as as you often find in little enclaves on on the U.S. left, I don't see people sort of uh, complaining so much about language policing, uh, acting as though you know culture is the realm of politics in the way that we do over here. Every there's a hot take, there's a whole hot take industry that flies off every time Beyonce releases a new video. Um, all this kind of crap it hmm. flourishes. Isn't she here a Republican?
1: Registered Republican.
2: Well I mean if she's not in, in you know in, in in practice she is in her, in her in her you know in actuality I mean you know, anybody who has as much money as they do uh could be really uh you know all about expropriating Sorry. themselves So
1: Z. Um, if I, if yeah. I could Jay Z. <laughs> um I've
0: been reading quite a bit of um Brendan O'Neill, and
1: <laughs> I understand
0: yeah, so to my understanding, actually, all the left does is try to silence people.
1: Yeah, that's all we ever do. <laughs> yeah.
0: Is that where do? the ice comes in?
1: Yeah, obviously. Um, Shove them under okay. the ice. Uh,
0: right. I just to, uh, is that where his fedoras disappeared to?
1: Def- <laughs> most definitely. I mean, he comes from um, right. the old uh, so... Revolutionary Communist Party, and they, they just evolved into, like terrible right-wing libertarians but they're then these types of people then use to attack the left because they nominally come from the left do you have that in america yeah
0: like dave they're, yeah. they're about as left as dave about as left as dave rubin
1: who's dave rubin oh you're you're, you're oh my god you're, okay you're i'm not gonna burst ignorant. that
0: bubble fight. don't All burst right, the bubble my friend no
2: he's just he's an ass bag Ignor- over here Ignorance one of these uh It is media right wing trolls. It's
0: just a contrarian shitload.
2: So, talk to me about the way that momentum was really very open about sort of you know I don't want to use the word purifying because purifying is often has a has a negative connotation, but I think in the momentum case, it's a very positive one Mm. Uh, where uh, you know a, a certain sort of radical, mostly young fraction of momentum had a number of of chants. It was an out woke lords, out nonce's, out out melts, out, you know, out trots, yeah. out this out that, right? The idea being that like, look, like we're not going to be what the far left has traditionally been yeah. in this country. Not organizationally, not culturally, and not politically. We're not going to play these games where you show up to meetings and show how smart you are and prove your virtue and argue about bullshit for the duration of the entire meeting. We're going to be oriented towards mass politics and the needs of the many, yeah. uh, not the few. So tell us a little bit about how that culture came about because it's such a refreshing uh, – it's a, such a breath of fresh air from from where I stand in the U.S. Even, even in relation to, say, the Democratic Socialists of America, which oftentimes very much falls prey – to the kind of uh, navel gazing moralism that Momentum has thus far been able to sort of eradicate from its ranks?
1: So I think a lot of this actually has its beginnings in the pre Corbyn era, particularly in the party. So there was a milieu of young activists on the left uh, around Young Labour, the party's youth wing. Who basically who had been in left factions of the party and everything, but basically came to the conclusion that none of these organisations were effective at all. Uh, it was a bunch of quite often a bunch of like very old people sat around a room ranting, but not actually doing anything. And we all knew we agreed with one another. Uh, and if we didn't, we would discuss it and so on. Uh, so we just wanted to focus on action. You know, you don't, we didn't need to be debating. Stuff back and forth week on week, the same topics. You know, there was things that had to be done, stuff that had to, stuff that had to be built. So, in terms of the Labour, there was that that sort of split for a while from the sort of generation generationally old left. It was more of a generational divide that really saw its life come sort of saw itself come to full fruition with the sort of rise of Corbyn because you had these hundreds of thousands of young activists wanting to get involved and they don't want to go and sit in a political meeting after a long day at work. You know, they do want to learn things. It's just not that they want to be ignorant or anything, but you know, the changing nature of our political economy means that not everybody works nine to five anymore. It doesn't mean that they can take a Saturday afternoon off to sit around a room debating the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. Uh, but but I want to be he clear he about a distinction here because in, in the
2: U.S. I've heard people make a very similar argument, an argument that sounds similar, I should say, at least in in, in, in you know in, in words and in, But the content it turns out to be very different uh, because what they're what they're saying is that we just sort of need to to act, which basically amounts to just throwing shit. Trend. Yes, it's throwing shit at the wall to see what sticks. Yeah, Um, it's sort of like it's this it's this vaguely anarchist sort of zeitgeist where it's like, um, uh, what do they call it? Um, Diversity of tactics. Uh, You do your thing. I'll do my thing. We don't have to agree. We just sort of everybody sort of acts all at the same time all at once. There's no real uh, method behind the madness, whereas it sounds like the the young folks certainly comprised in the Labour Party in, in Momentum we're all on the same page in, with respect to the the need to, to, to fight austerity and to win policies that uh, most impact the masses of people out there in society. It wasn't about sort of like, uh, okay, well, let's not talk so much well, about this. We probably, let's put our black masks on and go smash up some bank windows. Like nobody in momentum was saying yeah, that. Yeah, no, right? but I think that's
1: because the vast majority of us come from what people would term the masses you know we're just ordinary people there's nothing special about us at all right we're just fed up we just had enough uh and we've got in you know and we're interested in politics and stuff like that so we get involved and we help out but the only reason we do the things that we do is is for our, our own collective upliftment the upliftment of all and one of the things that i don't think people have really realized is that you know Mass politics should also be opt-in politics. You shouldn't have to do everything. There's no set programme of what it means to be a political activist. Uh, You also get this a lot on the Labour right, who think if you don't go knocking on doors every weekend and spend all your weekend doing that, you're not a proper Labour activist. There are also people in the British Labour movement, and probably elsewhere, who are also quite anti-intellectual, and there is a current of that inside of Momentum that's more on the sort of the sort of quieter, shy side. I think ultimately it's been about to use well there's probably a better term, a better phrase to use, but you know, making the left great again. actually making the left something people wanted to be a part of you know we have parties and uh, barbecues and we still hold political education meetings and everything like that but it's a lot more we're putting so the social back into socialism uh which is what it was originally you know if you look at the beginnings the early beginnings of social democracy you know they were running boxing clubs and gymnastic groups and you know Uh, history societies and you know everything everything that is in life is political ultimately so you know the political realm is never ending and so you can't simply pigeonhole yourself yourself into like one thing which is what a lot of people on the left have sort of fallen into Right. But how that gets
2: translated in the U.S. context, I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but I'm just so puzzled as to why the, cult, the political cultures are so different. H- how this, this gets manifested in the U.S. is that put, we want to put the social back into socialism. There, there are groups craft, of people who say that.
0: Craft, what they, yes, what
2: they ultimately end up doing <laughs> is they take their existent yeah. uh, click. They take the click. this kind of very this affinity-based group of of people who who believe in these very narrow, uh, un unpopular, unmassified uh, pol- political policies, right? And then they and then they go and like uh, I don't know they knit together. They have a radical gonna knitting crochet, caucus.
0: They're going to crochet or, their way to the revolution,
2: right? So so what you have is a bunch of fucking weirdos at a barbecue, uh, pretending to put the social back into socialism. In reality, they're still they're still operating as an affinity group as a clique. Uh, not oriented towards mass politics, but they're just barbecuing right Yeah.
0: not that's not how starting, it's done ultimately.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean well, so you do you see what I mean like i mean so i it, it's very it's 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 rewarding and it's uh it's gratifying to hear you say that that's what's happening over in momentum but i I see people trying to do that over here. And uh, I don't see any differences. Like I said, it's just a bunch of, it's just a bunch of, of friends who are in an affinity group called a political uh, organization who are barbecuing together. Interestingly uh, still enough, have a this, mass is what,
1: this is what the traditional organized left has been saying about a lot of the people you're talking about over here who you're praising. Their criticisms are the same ones that you're making of the, the, the people you're talking about back home.
0: I imagine that's because to some degree they see it as an existential threat. Like if they've cornered themselves off into this just subcultural grouping that is ostensibly political but in reality is a fucking culture club, the fact that people like yourselves are managing to be both political and social um, puts a lie to the fact that the left has to just be this marginalised little left ghetto, and that to them is an existential threat because they've set their identity around the idea of just being this ghettoized culture club.
2: But but tell me more, Max, about what you just said a moment ago. So what what, what did you mean there in terms of the criticism that Momentum is getting from people? Because I, I want to, I really do want to have like a, I want to have a relentless sort of comparative uh, picture between Momentum and, and the U.S. context, uh, just for my own personal clarification. So what, what did you mean by that?
1: Sorry, what was that? I got
2: distracted. Uh, you'd mentioned that there were people in the in the, in the the UK context who were making the similar criticisms.
1: Yeah, but they're made. more from the sort of uh, more organised left traditions. You know, they're in Trotskyist groups and so mm, on. I see, I see. Who see it okay. as secondary I to see. the rest of the struggle. I got but you. the that thing is, sense. if you're not improving people's lives, then what's the point? Then what are you doing? You've got to improve their lives in the here and now whilst pointing towards... Uh, the path towards the future.
2: Yeah. Some people will be fulfilled, um, you know, uh, intrinsically by having socialism as something like a hobby, right? You read about socialist history, you, you, you learn about it. You go to the pub and you have a, you have a beer over stories of past socialist struggles. It's exciting for us. Uh, to an extent, I would suppose that the three of us have other hobbies as well, uh, but we can't certainly expect that to be the case for you know broader society at large. You're either, you're either delivering the goods, so to speak, or or you're irrelevant. Spot on. We've got to get going here, Amy. Any final questions for Max before we uh, let him loose?
0: Um, no, I just i I remember reading some time ago basically the idea that um, one of the key things momentum needs to do is um kind of acknowledge the politics but also kind of embrace the contradictions at the heart of any kind of social democratic orientation particularly if it's inhabited by people who want you know full socialism as their ultimate end goal um i just wanted to like compliment you guys on managing to kind of do that and get rid of kind of wreckers and (laughs) workloads <laughs> melts and nonsense and just kind of keep your eyes on the prize I think you guys are doing a really good job of of keeping things in focus that way so
2: thank you very much so Max Shanley co-host of all the best podcast momentum activist labor party activist a solid dude all around thanks for joining us we'd like to have you back on the dead pundit society in the near future to talk about events as they as they crop up thanks for having me bye And that concludes this week's interview with Max Shanley of the UK Labor Party and UK Momentum. That man is full of stories. I enjoyed the hell out of that. He has some really great inside you know, tales of, of lore, if you will, about the transformations that have been happening at the ground level for the past several years over there in the UK. And uh, some of these stories are very you know, um, instructive for some of the efforts that, that socialists like us are trying to pull off across the globe so uh much more of that to come we're going to have alex nuns on the show as we hinted Uh, he is the author of the book the candidate it's about jeremy Corbyn and the labor party and some of the transformations that have happened over there Uh, we're going to be having a senior advisor to a very senior member of the uk labor party on hopefully in the next several weeks if all goes well that show is in the works i'm still kind of keeping that under wraps i'm teasing it uh, but that that that's going to be really exciting. You all are not going to want to miss that. I'm Going to have Leo Panitch and or Sam Ginden on the on the program in the coming weeks as well to talk about their latest book on socialist strategy. They cover not only Jeremy Corbyn but Bernie Sanders and uh, the Greek series of tragedy that happened a couple of years ago in that book. And it has a whole wealth of information about uh, the, some of the limitations, pitfalls, and contradictions of socialist transformation. So yeah, I mean, get excited for that, everybody. Uh, Patrons are going to be hearing our second episode that we're going to be doing later this week. So if you're not yet a patron, head over to patreon.com slash Pundits and subscribe today. You'll have access to our entire back catalog of B-sides. And in addition, you will hear an extra episode of Dead Pundits each week. So I know you're not going to want to miss that. Thanks to all of the patrons who are still listening. I know this thing has gone a little bit long. If you're not quite sick of my voice yet. And you're still listening. Anyway, signing off. Dead Pundit out.
0: <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother.